0: So, again, what I want to do this morning, since we're going to be looking at the latter half of chapter 18, and then chapter 19 is a long chapter, it's 38 verses. I want to read this in parts again, so as we go along, we'll cover the material, but may I direct your attention to verse number 16 of chapter 18, which is, we left off last time with chapter 18, verse 15, and right now I'm going to read down through the end of the chapter, okay? So, Genesis 18, 16, then the men set out. Remember the three angels, or the three men who came. Then the three men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom, and Abraham went with them to set them on their way. If it wasn't already apparent, the Lord, so Jehovah, see it all caps, is one of those three. The other two are angels. And so, shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do? Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham stood still before the Lord. So to depart the angels, the Lord remains. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place, and not spare it for the fifty righteous who are in it. Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you," notice this, couched in the form of a question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just, or as the King James translates, do right? And the Lord said, if I find in Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him, suppose there are 40 found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there, he answered. For the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but this once. I think that's significant. He's not going to do any more. This is the end of his plea. And I will speak but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. Our gracious heavenly Father, you have given us once again, this special day that we have set apart because you have told us to, Now we come to the preaching and teaching of your word in this day, which is something you have also commanded us to do. And all of that gives us confidence to come to you to ask your blessing, for we are here at your behest, and we do what we do at your command. And so, dear Lord, would you please just undertake, would you bless in this class, would you give me that fresh cleansing and unction and presence of the spirit that are are needed in order to be a blessing to folks. That, That power is not resident within me alone. And I just pray you'd help, Lord, to be a blessing to people here today because we all come with questions and needs, and sometimes uh, we're even, not even totally conscious of what it is we need to hear, and it's something that you want us to be aware of for a future need. So whatever the situation today, would you guide, would you direct, would you bless every listener, and would you bless every class, and we'll thank you for what you do now. In Jesus' wonderful name, amen. So... Today, we come to lesson number five, and you're not going to hear me talk today so much about tests. Maybe you're tired of hearing about tests, but uh, we're going to get back on track with that a little bit, but you are going to hear me talk about faith, because really, faith is the whole ball of wax when it comes to what we're doing with Abraham. That's how he's known in the scripture. I made that point at the outset. So, we are going to be talking about faith, and you notice that what I've titled this today is the basis of faith, and this lesson is maybe A little different than what you might normally be expecting, so I'm going to ask the Lord for special help as I've already done and and hope that this will be some help and some blessing to us today. Now do you remember something I said last week? We were looking at quite a bit of material last week, chapter 16, chapter 17, and then through the first half of chapter 18. Three visitations from the Lord. Do You remember I pointed out there's a different focus in each of the visits, so in chapter 16 the focus is Hagar. Chapter 17, it's Abraham, and God gets Abraham on board with the promise, and God eliminates any possibility that the seed is going to come from any other source than a child given to Abraham through Sarah. And, you know, Abraham, um, he gets a retake on the test. That's what we were talking about, Brother Langford asked me last time, saying, well, it was a test, did he fail? Well, he got a retake, and we just have to kind of be careful because we can't judge the situation by the, the initial reaction, so Abraham is fully on board with this. He responds exactly as God would want him to respond. But Sarah, you know that hasn't taken place with her yet, and it's not just biologically um, necessary, but spiritually it was necessary for for Sarah to be on board. I mean, I don't want to get too involved with the physical descriptions of things, but it's apparent that they realized they were at the stage in life where this kind of thing just wasn't possible, and you can figure it out from there. So for Abraham to come trotting back home and say, we're going to have a baby, she was probably looking at him kind of like, oh yeah? So it's really important for Sarah to be on board with this. From every perspective that you can think about this, this is crucial. So I pointed out last week, she's the focus, and when we get to 18.1, the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre, but it becomes... Very quickly obvious that Sarah is the reason for the visit. But now when we get to the verse 16 of the chapter, we're finding out there's another reason for the visit. Sarah, not to put any less emphasis on her, but Sodom, which in some ways, you're thinking to yourself, that's kind of random. You can see where it's really important for God to have Sarah on board and, 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 and them both to embrace his promise in in terms of a child? Why is Sodom important? And I don't have time to pursue that, except I will tell you this. Here's one obvious thing, and I think there are some other points that could be made. But it's not unimportant to Abraham, because he's already rescued this place once, right, in the military engagement that was recorded earlier. He's He's already rescued Lot once, right? Now, he's going to do it again. And Sodom is important to Abraham because Lot lives there, and there are other reasons for this as well. So, this is the other reason now for the visit. And I want to point out that if you want to come to a place in the Bible, I, I found it interesting, you know, Pastor Cameron has the same constraints we all do. You only have so much time when you, when you have a, a message or a presentation. And Wednesday evening, he was talking about intercession, and we had the the prayer in Exodus, and he, he referenced also in the New Testament Paul, another great place if you want to do a case study in intercession and you want to be early in the Bible with it, this is probably one of the best places that you can possibly go. I mean, you have all the elements of intercession here, and again, I, I, I wish I had time to talk about it, but we just don't. But when you get to the end of verse number 25, this is really what I want to talk about today. You have revealed what Abraham, and I think biblically this is true as well, you have revealed what Abraham considers the basis, the very basis of his prayer. So let's make this practical. On what basis do you pray? You pray because you think it's just a good thing to do. Do you pray because you believe God? If you do believe God's promises, on what basis do you believe God's promise? You must have something that you base prayer on. You feel it's worthwhile, you engage in it, why? That's what we're gonna be talking about today. Why was Abraham able to be such an effective and bold intercessor? And by the same token, if we're wondering, does prayer have any relevance? And is prayer something that really works? And is prayer effective? Why is that so? So we're going to talk about that a little bit in the the lesson today. Once you see this question, it's, it's couched in terms of a question at the end of verse number 25. This is the whole enchilada for Abraham. It's just inconceivable. Think of it this way. It's inconceivable to Abraham that God would act in any way that would be inconsistent with his own moral character. Did you catch that? It's inconceivable to Abraham that God would act in any way that is inconsistent with his own moral character. So, what is that character of God? What is that moral character of God? Because once we discover this for Abraham, we've also discovered it for ourselves, and that's where. The application is in today's message. So, if you were going to select a theme other than intercession, if you were going to kind of look at what's the whole basis, what drives this prayer, well, it's God's righteous character. And in these verses, verses 23 to 26, you have the word righteous occurring some six times. Now, you notice something's kind of interesting. You could could infer that it's more, you can count six. But the truth of the matter is when the prayer gets underway, it's assumed because Abraham has asked it once, but then he just says, suppose that 50 righteous in verse 26 are lacking, and all the other ones he just says, well, what if it lacks five? What if it lacks ten? Five what? Are you with me what I'm trying to say? It, it's understood that this whole idea of righteous righteousness just permeates this entire thing. You also have the word just occurring one time, and I I use the word just because that's the way um, the ESV uses it. So um, in the King James, it says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And here it says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? So that's what we're sort of about doing today. And I want to make the point. I I hope I can be effective with this today. But if not, I'll, I'll say it now so that you can be looking for it, and maybe you'll get it even if I don't give as effective a presentation as I'd like to. We're looking at three things within this overall story, three episodes, and all of them are designed to validate God's righteous character. That's what's driving this. So let's look at the first one. It's the prayer of Abraham, and we've kind of already set the stage for this. See, Abraham believed that God, what did he believe about God? What do you believe about God? What kind of a God are we serving? And Abraham believed that God was both just and righteous. What do those terms mean? You often find those terms together in scripture, so more verses than we could possibly look at, but I've just got a couple of them here I want you to see. Here's Psalm 89, 14. Watch how these two are traveling companions. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Now, here's one that we're kind of familiar with from the Christmas season a lot, Isaiah 9.7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throat throat of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it, here it is, with justice and righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So I think you see this, and, and you see it a lot in Scripture. But what do these terms really mean? Well, first of all, you have the word just. He asked the question, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Which is mishpat in the original language. And this is kind of a term that we often restrict to justice. In other words, we're thinking about a law or a legal type environment. But the term is, is actually kind of broad. It refers to God's governance. All right, let's just stop a moment, because I want to be sure everybody's on board with what I'm trying to say. Governance. So, government. Of the increase of his government. Government. Now, ever since Genesis 9, human government has been a part of God's administration of the earth, right? In fact, if you follow a, a normal dispensational type approach. That human government is the name of one of, that's usually given to one of the dispensations. We have governance in our country. We have a government in our country. You don't have to answer this. Maybe better that you don't. But what kind of government do we have? I'm not asking by comparison to the other governments of the world. I'm asking, what's your opinion of our government? Is it righteous? Do you see where we're headed with this? So how does God conduct the affairs of his governance? And the Bible says this, to do what is just, and then he uses the term righteous. He says, your character is righteous, and so we know that how you administer, whenever you apply justice or however you you govern the things of this world, it's always in conformity with your righteous character, always. Don't you wish that were the case? Yesterday we were talking a little bit. We had uh, our oldest son and his family were over for for dinner. We had a little thing for his birthday, and somehow the subject of this lawsuit against who makes Hershey or not Hershey, but who makes um, Reese's Cups is that Hershey? Is it Hershey? Okay. So you you heard about this lawsuit about this lady who complained that the Hershey's um, or the Reese's Cups that were supposed to look like pumpkins didn't look like pumpkins? Well, they looked like, maybe they looked like pumpkins, but they didn't have the little face and all that. And then if you saw the ones that they sold for football season, if you looked at the picture on the front wrapper, it was supposed to have, you could see the the laces that are on the football, you know? But if you get the, the candy out, you didn't You didn't see that. And this lady brings this lawsuit against them for, I guess, false advertising or whatever else. And so we got to talking about the fact that, well, you know, sure, there's things as frivolous lawsuits, but the other side of the coin is it's also true that corporations like governments, I'm not picking on Hershey now, but I'm just saying in general, corporations like governments are run by fallen people. Is that true? Absolutely, is true. Fallen people. But sometimes, you really get fallen people. In other words, sometimes you get people that don't have any scruples at all, that don't have much constraint. And that dishonesty that's, a, that's, a, that's a, an actual part of the Adamic nature, that's just how they are. I mean, it just comes out everywhere. It comes out in their, in, in, in their corporate governance and sometimes it comes out in the government of our own country. I mean, we've seen so many things in the last several years that have just undercut the confidence and trust that people feel like they can place in their government. So what in the world are we doing to try to illustrate this with a verse from Leviticus and a verse from Ezekiel? I'll show you. Don't I? Oh, I guess I aren't going to show you. Well, I have to turn. So, let me just do the Leviticus one, because this is kind of weird, or it's kind of interesting. Uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse number 36. Now here's something, you'd think God wouldn't have to tell them this, but knowing human nature like we know it, look what he says, you shall have just balances. What's the image for justice? Lady Justice, the scales. So if you were a grain seller, he says, you shall have just balances. You might weigh money or you might weigh grain. And he goes on to say in the verse, just weights, a just ephah, and a just hin. The hin measured liquid. So if you go to buy gas, which is we all do. You ever look there and notice that there's a little round decal on the pump? It's punched with a date, and I'm not sure what in you call it in South Carolina, but it's it's something like the Bureau of Weights and Measurements. And that sticker is on there because what they're telling you is this pump's been inspected. So even though when you turn that thing on to pump the gas in your car, you can't see it as fast as it goes. You know what I'm saying? It, it goes so fast. But if you manage to stop right at a gallon, it should say $2.99 or 3 if that's what the price is, 2 dollars It better say $3, but what if it says $3, but you only got 0.95 gallons? You didn't have a just hint. And if you think about how many gallons of gas run through a place or run through a company, if you could just slight that a little bit, hardly noticeable. Except when you multiply that by millions of gallons, then all of a sudden, somebody's got a profit margin way in excess of what? That's cheating. That's not having a just hint. Why? Because it didn't conform to the standard. The standard for the gallon is that, not .95. That's what this is all about. So When you put these two things together, that God's governance, how He manages the affairs of this world and people, together with the fact that God is righteous, that means His government and His governance always conforms to His righteous character. He never cheats. He never does something that's disproportionate or inconsistent with who He is. That's the basis of this prayer. This is what offends, if we speak in human language, this is what has Abraham excited. It just doesn't seem right that God would do this, and he protests this. And If you look at this phrase I tried to call your attention to it when we were there earlier, but um, this is actually called the way of the Lord. If you look at verse number 19, he says, "'For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord.'" What is the way of the Lord? By doing righteousness and justice. So it represents the way of the Lord. And this is what Abraham is basing his prayer on, that God can't be guilty of a moral inconsistency. God cannot be seen, God will never be seen as doing anything that violates his own moral character. That's the basis of his prayer. And if you think about it, that's really where we're coming from when we pray. You say, well, when I pray, I claim the promises. Okay, that's good. That's good. Think a little bit more. Politicians make promises all the time, don't they? Isn't that true? Politicians make, and lots of people make promises. They don't always keep them. So when you trust and claim God's promises, you're actually appealing to something beyond There's a moral underpinning to the truth of God's word, and it's who God is. And how I know that that's true is because God himself says it, even in Hebrews 6.13. When God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to swear, he swore by himself. It was basically God saying, look, I am who I am, that's what he told Moses when he explained what that name Yahweh meant, I am who I am. If I declare myself to be righteous, I am righteous and I am never inconsistent with my own character. I I can't tell you how huge this is because not only is this the underpinning of our faith, but this is really a great source of comfort for us to come to when there are mysteries that we don't understand. I mean, we could talk about this forever, you know, but I mean, there are so many things that happen in life that we don't have answers for and that we can't understand, but we can always go back to the fact, and you can memorize this verse and have it memorized before you get out of here, Genesis 18.25c, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? He will. He always will, whether he's revealed everything we want to know about a situation or not. So, all right, we're back to the point. The first episode reveals and substantiates God's righteousness, this prayer of Abraham. What about the judgment of Sodom? Okay, well, <laughs> we have that to deal with. So let's, let's read the largest swath of chapter 19. The two angels came to Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and bowed himself with his face to the earth and said, My lords... Please turn aside to your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise up early and go your way. They said, No, but we will spend the night in the town square. That might seem puzzling, but remember, they said they were there to inspect the place. But he pressed them strongly, so they turned aside to him and entered his house. And he made them a feast and baked unleavened bread, and they ate. But before they lay down, the men of the city of Sodom... Both young and old, all the people to the last man surrounded the house. So, in other words, what we're going to read next was pervasive. It wasn't the exception, it was the rule. And they called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may know them. I know you know what that means. Lot went out to the men at the entrance shut the door after him and said, I beg you, my brothers, do not so wickedly. Behold, I have two daughters who have not known any man. Let me bring them out to you and do to them as you please. Only do nothing to these men, for they come under the shelter of my roof. That in itself to me is morally reprehensible, but we'll go on. But he seemed to his sons-in-law to be joking, jesting. As the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot, saying, Up, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be swept away in the punishment of the city. But he lingered. So the men seized him and his wife and his two daughters by the hand, the Lord being merciful to him. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. Let me escape there. Is it not a little one? And my life will be saved. He said to him, Behold, I grant you this favor also, that I will not overthrow the city of which you have spoken. Escape there quickly, for I can do nothing till you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar, which means little. The sun had risen on the earth when Lot came to Zoar. Then the Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur, and fire from the Lord out of heaven and he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the valleys and what grew on the ground but Lot's wife looked behind him looked back and she became a pillar of salt and Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord and he looked down upon he looked down toward Sodom toward and toward all the land of the valley and He looked, and behold, the smoke of the land went up like the smoke of a furnace. I have about three or four things I want you to consider, but remember what we're trying to do. So I'm going to unleash on you about four thoughts. What we're trying to do is see how this study demonstrates God, or see how this particular scene, the judgment of Sodom, how does it validate God's righteousness? All right. Here's a first thought. God said He would inspect Sodom before judging it. That's back already in chapter 18, verse 20. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down and see. Same thing He says in chapter 19, verse or the angels say in chapter 19, verse 13. Did God really have to inspect the place to know? Doesn't God know everything? Yeah, He does. So, why does He say that? Well, it's an accommodation. Understand what I'm trying to say? It's an accommodation to us. It's using language we understand to more fully bring out the fact that God's judgment is not arbitrary. If God's judgment falls, it's a completely righteous decision on His part. And so, that language is used for our benefit because God already knows, in fact, To anticipate our next point after this, God already knows when He allows Abraham to intercede, there aren't going to be ten of them there. But here's the second thought. Here this judgment is portrayed as a last resort. Do you notice what it says in chapter 18, verse 21? It's fascinating how the, uh, the ESV brings this out. He says, I will go down now to see whether they have done all together. I don't know if you have a marginal reading on that. I, the, the, the one that I'm using does. I will go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry that has come to me, and if not, I will know. All right, the marginal reading says this: whether or not they have done all together. Or they not the marginal reading, but what they have made a complete end. Have they gotten to the end? Is there an end? Can you become so thoroughly depraved and wicked in your dealings that you completely sin away the day of grace and there's nothing that remains except God's judgment? You can think about that if you want to, but I think it's true. I think there are people walking around right now that are as damned as if they'd already died and gone to hell. But you and I don't know that. You and I don't have a bullseye painted on their back to know that. So you have to keep on witnessing to them but this begins to lay the foundation. This is an illustration that God is giving here. He told Abram back in chapter 15 and verse 16 that, as for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace, you shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet full. It's not yet complete. It's not yet at an end. They had 400 more years of grace But here was a place, or places, because there were the five cities of the plain, four of which got the fire and brimstone rained down on them, that they had already reached the limit. What is that limit? I don't know. If you knew that limit, you'd just wait till the last day to get saved. That's how, that's how perverse we are in our thinking. We don't know that. But what this whole thing hints at is they have exhausted their last chance. And I just have to tell you, folks, I don't have. I mean, that to me is somber. That's sobering to think that that can be true. But that's the way it is. Even this intercession, even this prayer, as I started to get to this a minute ago, really. You know, we look at it from a human standpoint, well, Abraham was really burdened to pray for these people. No, God sets this up. Because if you go back to chapter 18 and look at this, what does he say? I mean, the, the other two walk off. The angels, they go. The Lord stays. The Lord stays. The Lord makes it a point to stay because he wants to have a conversation with Abraham. He wants to give Abraham a chance to have a conversation with him. But the, the Lord starts the conversation, and what does he say? He says, I'm not going to hide from Abraham the thing that I'm going to do. I'm planning to judge this place. Why does he tell him that? He tells him that because he sets the stage. He prompts Abraham. He knows Abraham will be thinking about Lot. He knows Abraham has already been instrumental in the saving of this place once. He knows there's an extent to which Abraham is invested in this and so he allows for the intercession of his servant, on behalf of this wicked city, folks. That's grace. That is, it, it hints of a gracious allowance. And, and you know, this is a Habakkuk's prayer: "O Lord, I've heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear in the midst of the years revive it? In the midst of the years, make known in wrath, remember mercy." So Abraham intercedes, and it's interesting. Though again, to be a parrot, we don't have time to talk about all the things that it'd be really tempting to talk about, but I mean Abraham intercedes and, and gets the Lord down from fifty to ten. And I emphasized in that verse, on the last petition, verse thirty-two, he says, Oh let the Lord not let, let the Lord not be angry, and I will speak but this once. Abraham gets from fifty to ten and stops. Why do you think he stopped at 10? Because he knew there wasn't, he knew there wasn't That was the only chance he had, I guess, probably, right? Because, I don't know. I'm thinking he thought the coast was clear with 10. Right. I mean, right, right. I'm thinking he thought he had it. I mean, if you think about it this way, we got Lot and Mrs. Lot. That's two, right? we got two daughters. That's four. Okay, they were apparently engaged to these two sodomites, it's interesting. that gives you six. The angels talk about sons. That's an open question. We don't know. Did he have any sons? Can't, can't prove it one way or another. If Abraham's nuclear family was just the names that we have revealed or just the people that we have discussed, there were only four you count the two sons and all there were six, if you think there were anybody else or if you think that he might have succeeded in influencing anybody, that's a non sequitur, doesn't work. That's another message. Then, I think he thought that he was probably safe with ten, not to mention the fact he'd already stuck his neck out. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's one of the key ingredients of boldness, of intercession is boldness, and he's bold. But when you get down to it, the judgment falls. And how does this validate God's righteousness? Because God will do what He has said He's going to do. And there are a lot of people who scoff at that. You go out and preach, just, just try it one time. Go out and preach judgment. People think you're looney tunes. But in 2 Peter 2.6, God says it was an example. It was something 400 years before it really happened, and it justified when God said to his people, you go back, kill them all. Have you ever wondered about that? Was God just in that? Was God righteous in that? Was that a situation where, not if God knows that those people have already reached a place where there's no turning back. And so 400 years before, they get an illustration. God can judge, God will judge. How long do these illustrations work with people? How long did 9-11 work? Just saying. But when you get to this, this is the point that Peter gets to in chapter 3. Don't overlook this, he says. One day with the Lord is as a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. And it isn't that the Lord is slow. It's not that He's forgotten. No, it's not that at all. This is what He tells them. The scoffers are telling you, This isn't going to happen. Where's the promise of His coming? This is all just a farce. No, it's just God's long-suffering. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should have come to repentance. But it's coming. It is coming. God's completely righteous. He says it's coming, it's coming. And so God is seen as never arbitrary or unfair. He inspects the place, he goes to the limit, but he's always perfectly gracious and just. Now we have about five minutes, so I gotta kick it into warp speed. So there's one last episode, and with your permission, I'm only gonna read two verses. It's not that I wouldn't read the others, but I don't like to. It's just unseemly in the extreme. But look at verse 29. So it was when God destroyed the cities of the valley, God remembered Abraham, the intercessor, and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had lived. Now Lot went up, out of Zoar and lived in the hills. Thought he said he couldn't live in the hills. Remember that? For he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters, and I'm pretty sure we all know what happened there. Well, how does this demonstrate God's righteousness? Two ways. Because he kept his promise to Abraham and he kept his He kept his verity with his own moral values. Would you have assumed that Lot was righteous? See, I thought I had those verses for you, too, and I don't. But if you look at 2 Peter 2, 7, and 8, it says Lot was righteous. So God knows that, and I don't think if that verse weren't in the New Testament, I'm not sure we would have included that that Lot was a believer. In fact, I'm pretty sure almost every sermon you heard on Lot would not be that he was a carnal Christian, but that he was not a Christian at all. But it says it, and God sees the heart. So if the Lord knows how to deliver the righteous out of temptations, this is what Peter says, all right? So that's a way that God's righteousness, because he remembered Abraham, he knows that Lot is righteous, and so even if he has to grab him by the hand, can you imagine this? Even if he has to drag him out, he's going to honor his own moral character. But, you've heard the saying before, you can choose your sin, but you can't choose the consequences. This is scary, folks. This is really scary. Because Lot is definitely portrayed as reaping the tragic consequences of his own sin, Remember, way back in Genesis 13, in so much like the tents, he liked the idea of the city. So he goes from the tents to the city to a cave. Seemed to me like he'd have been better off in the tent, don't you think? I mean, you know, sometimes the Christian way and the Christian experience are not easy. Isn't that true? Still the best way. Don't ever let the devil sell you on the fact that the grass is greener over there in the world. It ars'n't. It not. And, and so, within the space of three chapters, chapter 16 over to chapter 19, Israel's three most implacable neighbors, the Arabs, I'm sorry to generalize like that, the descendants of Ishmael, then the Ammonites and the Moabites. Here they are. How would it come about? The New Testament itself, Jesus warns us not to forget. Likewise, just as it was in the days of Noah, I did get this verse. They were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planning and building. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom this is Jesus speaking. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, those were just fictitious stories in the Old Testament. But on the day when Lot went out of Sodom, fire and sulfur rained down from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. He said it. On that day... Let the one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down to take it away. And likewise, let the one who is in the field not turn back and look at the last statement. Remember Lot's wife. So, again, God's righteous character is validated because he's completely true to his word, completely in conformity with his own moral character. He never disappoints, he's never capricious, he's never arbitrary, he's never unfair, and he is never unfaithful, because he's righteous. So what do you do with all these mysteries in life? There's a lot of them. Well, this verse gives us some hope, doesn't it? Because we know that God's always going to be righteous in what he does. Got to stop. Lord, help us and bless us as we continue on with our day and with our worship in Jesus' holy name, amen.